Uh, let me pray before we turn to God's word. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you have spoken so wonderfully to us, first in your Son, but then by your Scriptures. And Father, uh, we pray now that you'll give us the right attitude to your Word, that you'll bring us in submission to it, that you'll give us ears to hear, uh, but also hearts that are soft to receive it in faith and repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I uh, first started work after uni, I'd had a lot of part-time jobs before then, but my first full-time job after uni, uh, I worked in the heady, exciting world of corporate taxation. I know, I know, it's as exciting as it sounds. Uh, very early on, I was asked to uh, write my first advice for a client, and uh, so I went away and I spent hours on it. I, I researched everything about it. I, I wrote this excellent two pages for the client, uh, and I thought, this is really good work. They must be so thankful that they've employed me. Uh, this is so good. So I put it in my boss's in-tray outside her office uh, and thought, well, that's a job well done. I'll find something else to do now. Uh, an hour later, my boss walked past and just sort of leant over the top of the, the cubicle and dropped something on my desk and, and kept walking. Uh, and it was my two-page letter, and it was totally covered in red pen. Uh, there was not one word left. You could see at the start where she'd started sort of taking out one word and replacing it, and then it was just and rewritten totally. Uh, I think, dear so-and-so and yours sincerely were the only remainders of what I had originally written. Uh, it's demoralizing, isn't it? When, when you work hard at something and then discover actually you've missed the mark, you've, you've wasted your time. Uh, I'd wasted maybe five hours on that work, but I imagine it's the same in all jobs. If, you, if you're a carpenter, I imagine it's horrible. If you spend hours making up the cupboards and then you work out, actually they don't fit in the hole they're meant to go into or the, the, the person doesn't like them. Uh, but imagine if it was your life's work. Imagine if it was your life's work. Imagine if it was years of your life that you'd poured out and then someone comes and says, you've been wasting your time. How would you feel? You'd be demoralized. Uh, well, that is something of the scene we come to in Acts 15. So come with me there now. Please have your Bibles open because we're going through this whole chapter. Paul and Barnabas, as we've seen over the last two weeks, they have been traveling the world of that time, preaching the gospel. That's what they've been doing. They've just been going from town to town, sharing the good news of Jesus. And in particular, they had been preaching the message of justification by faith, as we've come to know it. They had been saying anyone can be saved, anyone can come and become one of God's children, anyone can have their sins forgiven uh, and be a part of God's family, anyone can do that because Jesus has died for you and all you have to do is repent, turn from your old way of life and trust in Jesus, salvation by faith. And their work had not been easy. It hadn't been a holiday. We've been reading about this over the last couple of weeks. Uh, in, in most towns, they'd been run out of town after a short amount of time. At one point, they had been stoned to death. And they actually, the only reason they survived is they thought they were dead because they left them for dead. And then they were, they were sort of rescued. So really, they had given everything for the gospel. And people had been saved the last two chapters have been incredibly exciting. It's been, been wonderful. Gentiles, people from every nation on earth of that time, if you like, had been saved, had come to know Jesus. And it had happened en masse in some places. And so here they are, back home in Antioch, praising God for all that he'd done through their work over the last couple of years. Then some people turn up. 
And these people claim to be from head office, if you like. Uh, And they say, "We're, we're from James and potentially even Peter back in Jerusalem. And they say, no, 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 Paul, Barnabas, you've been getting it all wrong. And they say, these people you're rejoicing about, they're not even actually saved. They're not even yet, yet saved and you're rejoicing about it because you are not saved by faith alone. You are not saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That is not the truth. No, you need to do other things if you want to be saved, if you want to be a part of God's people. So look with me at what these men come and said. Look at verse 1. It says, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. The problem with what they're saying is, they say, unless at the start, unless you do this, you cannot be saved. Paul's been getting it all wrong. It's great that these Gentiles want to join us. It's great that they want to follow Jesus. But if they want to be saved, they need to get circumcised, which is shorthand for they need to become Jews. They need to obey the law of the Old Testament. It's not faith alone in Christ alone that saves you. You need to do more than that if you want to be accepted by God. So there's the scene. Here's these men, seemingly with authority from the other apostles, seemingly, you know, with power coming from Jerusalem. Then there's Paul and Barnabas. What's going to happen? Well, Paul and Barnabas don't just sit meekly by. They don't just go and rewrite the letter like I did in my first week of work. They say, and this is my modern translation, they say, get lost. That's actually what they said. They say, get lost. It says there in verse 2, they have a serious argument and debate. Now we need to understand, Paul and Barnabas are not angry and upset because they're worried that they've wasted their life. They're not angry and upset because the people are going to sue them for false advertising. They know they are in the right. They are upset because what these people are saying is not just wrong, it will lead people to hell. That's why they're upset. That's why this is a serious argument. Because if people hear and listen to this, it will stop people being saved. We saw back in Acts chapter 14, when Paul preached in the Jewish synagogue, he he said to the Jews, the law of Moses cannot save you because you cannot keep God's law. A few years after this, he'd write in the book of Romans, there is no one righteous. There is not even one. There is no one who seeks God. So now, see, if we are saved by works, even in part, heaven will be empty. And if people start to believe what they're preaching, it will mean they will stop trusting in Christ alone, which is what they need to do to be saved. This was the biggest crisis that the church had faced up to this point. This was a bigger crisis than people throwing rocks at Paul. This was a bigger crisis than people killing the Apostle James who who died prior to this. If people start to believe this, it affects salvation. And so it was so big that the church there in Antioch decided to send Paul and Barnabas and a whole team down to Jerusalem to sort it out. They're thinking, surely James, which is a different James to the Apostle who died, James and Peter can't be wrong. They can't be saying this. They can't have lost the one true gospel. Before we get to that meeting in Jerusalem, I just want to stress the most important point we need to take from this passage. And it's my first point, it'll come up on the screen. Which is for salvation, truth matters. The truth matters. What you believe matters because your salvation depends on it. You need to know the gospel. You need to know what you believe and stand up for it. Paul wrote to the Galatians about this issue. 
Uh, I actually think he wrote the letter to the Galatians on his way down to Jerusalem. That's where I put it all together, but others disagree. But that's where I think he wrote it. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, But even if we, as in the Apostle Paul or an apostle, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we've preached to you, a curse be on him. You can't get stronger than that. Well, you can actually, because in Galatians chapter five, he says he wishes these men who are trying to tell everyone to get circumcised would actually go and castrate themselves. It's one of the strongest sentences in the Bible. He says, I wish that's what they would do to themselves. That is how angry he is at people who presume to be teachers coming and telling people a false gospel. Because the truth of the gospel matters. Our eternal destiny depends on it. Heaven and hell depends on it. We believe, that's why we say the creeds, isn't it? We believe that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God. We believe that Jesus died for our sins. We believe that he rose from the grave and defeated death. We believe that our salvation is a free gift from God received by faith alone. Knowing and holding to that gospel matters more than anything. And so even if I get up here, and try to tell you a different gospel, or for that matter, try to add to the gospel, then you should tell me to get lost too, just like Paul did to these men. The truth of the gospel matters more than anything. And that is actually the most important point to take away from Acts chapter 15. But we'll go back to the story, my second heading. And I've called it Vindication in Jerusalem from verse 3. So they set off for Jerusalem for this big church summit to argue the case But on the way there, there's actually a lovely little moment to pause at. Look with me at verse 3. As they go through Phoenicia and Samaria, the Christians there, who were Jews and Samaritans, there wouldn't have been many Gentiles among them, Jews and Samaritans are overjoyed when they hear that these these Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. I actually think that is one of the clearest signs that people are truly Christians themselves, that we just love to hear of other people becoming Christians. The clearest sign of a living faith is that you love the fact that other people come to faith because nothing is more joyful for someone who knows Jesus than hearing that other people have found the Lord and Saviour that you have come to know. Isn't that right? On the other hand, a lack of joy in gospel growth is a really worrying sign. If someone doesn't rejoice when people are being saved, I wonder whether they truly know Jesus. And sadly, Paul and Barnabas found that reaction as well. Some of the people there were not rejoicing. They were still bringing up the fact that they didn't think these Gentiles were true Christians. So they get to Jerusalem. You can imagine what the tension would have been like for Paul. Have you ever been going to one of those meetings where you're wondering what's at stake here? This is Paul here. Have Peter and James, the great ones, have they lost the gospel? And so everyone assembles, the elders, the apostles, people make their arguments Imagine if you were there, Paul and Barnabas would have been arguing from one side and these these Christians from from a Jewish background would have been arguing from the other side. Then Peter stands up and you can imagine the room going silent, can't you? As Peter stands up, the apostle Peter, the rock on whom I will build my church. He stands up and everyone holds their breath. But from the moment he starts, he vindicates Paul and Barnabas. More importantly, he confirms that we are saved by grace through faith not by works Peter's speech is just gold let's look at it look from verse 7 says after there had been much debate Peter stood up and said to them brothers you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you 
that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. It's a great speech, isn't it? Peter says, we've actually already dealt with this people. Why are we arguing about it, is sort of his point. You know how I shared the gospel with Cornelius. For us, it was last year, but but it's only actually a couple of chapters ago in in the book of Acts. You know how I shared the gospel with Cornelius the Gentile and he became a Christian. You know how God showed me that all foods are clean, how we're not bound by that Old Testament law anymore. You know how all these other Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. You know how God has been at work in them, just like he's been at work in us, cleansing them and us from our sins. And then he brings it together at verse 10. And I actually think this is Peter's greatest moment in the Bible. That's a pretty bold statement, given he said, you are the Messiah to Jesus. But anyway, verse 10, he says, Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? Such a powerful line, because do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, we Jews haven't been able to keep the law of Moses. We haven't been able to do what you're asking them to do. We Jews know you can't be made right by keeping the law. We Jews have discovered that what the law does is actually expose our need for salvation, expose how far we we, we fall short of God's standards. So how dare you ask them to take on a burden that God does not want them to take on and that you haven't been able to bear yourself? And then he says, I think one of the clearest statements about salvation in the whole Bible, look at verse 11. He says, on the contrary, We believed we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. You can imagine the troublemakers choking at that point. Not only are the Gentiles saved by faith alone, we Jews are too. Peter's actually saying, not only do they not have to keep the law, we don't either. Because that is the only way to be saved, by grace, through faith in Jesus alone. And so at that point, everyone falls silent. Now they listen to Paul and Barnabas share with them with joy all that God has been doing among the Gentiles. But there was still one person there whose opinion mattered a lot, and he hadn't spoken. And that was James, not James the Apostle. He'd already died by this point. This is James, the brother of Jesus, as in literally another son of Mary and Joseph, Uh, And he hadn't been one of the 12 disciples. I imagine he was one of the people who comes to Jesus at one point with Mary and says, Jesus, come home. You're being crazy. People people think you're a lunatic, you know. But at some point after Jesus' death and resurrection, he had become a Christian and he'd been accepted as one of the leaders of the church alongside Peter and John. And so the fight wasn't over yet because what if James disagrees? So now, last of all, James speaks up. Again, you can imagine the pause Straight away, James agrees with Peter. Now you can read his speech again from verse 13, if you look there from verse 13. But he, I'm not going to go through it in detail because there's other things I want to focus on. But he adds the point, actually this shouldn't surprise us because God told us he would include the Gentiles. The Old Testament prophets like Amos and Isaiah talked about how God would make a new restored people and how even the Gentiles would be welcome into that new people. James is saying this isn't some newfangled idea. This has been God's plan from the beginning. And that was the end of the argument. And it is the greatest truth. 
whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, now we are nearly all Gentiles, so we, we don't, we think of the church as Gentile, but that's because of this moment. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're African or Asian or European or Indigenous Australian or South American, or I've probably left off some parts of the world, but you know, God offers you forgiveness. God offers you a place in his family and you do not earn it. You can't. We are all sinners who fall short of God's standards. But God says, accept my free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. Praise God for it. Because without it, we would be facing the judgment of God with no hope at all. Hold on to that truth. That truth matters more than anything. And if I or anyone ever gets up here and teaches a different gospel, tell them to go away. That truth matters, the truth of the gospel. But then James keeps talking. Come with me now to verse 19 and following. James keeps talking. He says, that's all absolutely true, but I still want to ask something from you Gentile Christians. And so if we summarize the first point by saying, with regards to salvation, truth matters more than anything, James says, amen to that. But now he says, with regard to the church family, with regard to fellowship, love matters. So my third heading for fellowship, love matters. Come, come to verse 19. James says, therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. He says, I'm with you, faith alone. But then he says, verse 20, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled and from blood. Now to our ears, that is a very strange list of things to ask, isn't it? I like my steaks very rare. Am I disobeying James? I, I quite like blood in that sense. I'm sure that I have actually eaten food offered to idols at a Thai restaurant. If you think about it, there's often little idols there in Thai restaurants. It's a strange, I mean, sexual immorality, yes, we get you, James. God's morality hasn't changed between the Old and the New Testament. Sex is for one man and one woman to share in a marriage relationship. And so if someone continues on in unrepentant sexual immorality, they are not saved. So of course, all Christians need to abstain from sexual immorality. That's a sin that Jesus died to pay the price for. But the other things there are all straight out of the Old Testament ceremonial law that James just agreed we're not bound by so why still ask gentiles not to do those things well it's about love for other people because you want other people to hear the gospel and you don't want there to be a stumbling block in the way that stops them listening and then when people become christians you want to help them grow and you don't want to put stumbling blocks in their way to stop them hearing the word of god and growing See, James wants the Gentile Christians to see that it was actually really, really hard for Jewish people to accept that many of the laws they had followed so religiously no longer applied. For Jews who had become Christians, it was hard when they sat down and, and ate next to a Gentile who's there eating food they think has been forbidden for their, their whole life. And especially for Jews who were not yet Christians, they just thought, what is this Christianity business? They tell us Jesus is the Messiah, but it just seems to be an excuse to be ungodly, an excuse to break God's law. And for all Jews, it was especially hard because these sorts of practices, the things they're 
in the list in verse 20, they were all tied to pagan religions. I think that's why he includes sexual immorality, even though it's actually a sin, uh, unlike the other things. It was such a part of pagan religion. Pagan religion was just sexual immorality gone wild. It was such a part of it that Gentile Christians need to understand if they persisted in it, it wasn't just impacting their salvation, it would totally turn Jews away from Jesus. And so the big point James is saying here is, Look, there are enormous freedoms for us as Christians. You are not under the law. But at this point, it would just be really loving if you Gentile Christians were willing to limit your freedoms to help Jews hear the gospel and to help Jewish Christians keep growing. So yes, you're free to do these things. Go eat a blood sausage if you want. You're free to do it. But at the moment, if you do them, it will be a stumbling block for other people. So would you please refrain? This is such an important principle. Paul later expands it out in 1 Corinthians 8 and in Romans 14, if you want to go and read those later. But the the principle is for the Christian, just because you're free to do something doesn't mean you should do it. That's the principle. As Christians, we have a higher law, if you like, the law of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for people outside the church. And so be willing to limit our freedoms so that there are no stumbling blocks to people hearing about Jesus and being a part of his church. Now, this can be a really tricky thing to work out because it takes wisdom and it depends on the situation. In some places Paul went, he ended up not following the request of James because he decided this wasn't an issue here or actually I need to stand up for the truth of the gospel at this point and that's more important. At other points he did. Because it depends on the people and it depends on the situation. We don't like that because we like just laws. We like just make it easy for us. Tell us what I can and can't do. But it's not as simple as that, how to work out what is the right thing to do sometimes with the particular people you're meeting with. There's a great example in the last part of our reading this morning. So chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, if you look there, Paul meets this young man, Timothy. He's, he's a man with a Jewish mother. He's a Jew but he's never been circumcised. And Paul wants him to come on mission with him where they will be meeting Jewish people to to preach the gospel to. Now, in other points, Paul makes a point of not circumcising people. He says, I'm not circumcising people. If you think you need it for salvation, not going to do it. Truth matters. But here he does circumcise Timothy. Is Paul a hypocrite? Does he just flip and flop? You know, is he inconsistent? No, He does whatever is best on things that are not vital, on things that are not a matter of right and wrong. He does whatever is best for people and for the gospel. And because Timothy is a Jew and it'd be a stumbling block for other Jews if they found out he wasn't circumcised, he circumcises him so that nothing would get in the way of other people hearing the gospel. It takes wisdom, depends on the situation. But the principle is, The Christian will give up their freedoms and their preferences on matters that are not of biblical truth. The Christian will give up their preferences, their freedoms for the good of others. I stress this, not godliness. 
not matters of sin. I've seen some Christians who use this to justify wearing immodest clothes or, 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 or getting drunk or drinking more than they should because they say, oh, I need to fit in with the people at work to, to be a witness. No, that's rubbish. Jesus ate with the tax collectors and sinners. He didn't get drunk with the tax collectors and the sinners. This is actually about being more conservative, limiting your freedoms for the sake of others. So if you were inviting a Jewish person to church, I pray you do, or just say next, on Tuesday night, you're inviting a Jewish, I've invited a Jewish person actually, as I think about it, to the life course on Tuesday night. I should actually tell the coordinators of the life course that and say, just be careful and make sure there's food they can eat. Out of love for them, I hadn't thought of that. This sermon has really helped me with Tuesday night at the life course. Someone from the life team here can pass that on. Anyway, but it's true. You see, that's, that's what we do. You say, it, we cannot have a bacon and cheese roll this week. I'll let the morning tea team know. There might be someone from a Jewish background coming. We don't want a stumbling block stopping them. It doesn't mean you don't have things every week, but when you're aware of the situation, you make that change. If you're seeking to witness in a Muslim community, up at CMS Summer School this year, there are people who go into the Middle East. It's actually sometimes not safe to even know where they are. They're just they're in the Middle East. Now, if you're there, you would wear extra modest clothes, wouldn't you? If you were a woman, you would wear a headscarf. Now, you, you might say, oh, but I'm free to wear shorts and I'm free to keep my head on. Yes, you are, but you want these people to hear the gospel. You don't want a stumbling block in their way, so just put on a headscarf. You don't care about your freedoms, you care about them and the gospel. In the church, a common example is alcohol. I, I think the Bible is pretty clear that Christians are free to drink alcohol in moderation. Some Christians struggle with that and say, no, I don't think Christians should ever drink alcohol. So as a general rule at church events, we don't have alcohol. Why cause an issue? What does it matter that you don't get a glass of wine? What does it matter? Give up your freedom for the sake of other people. But far more important than any example I give is the principle. And the principle is that it is far more important that people hear the gospel. It is far more important that people grow as Christians than that you get what you want. That's actually the principle. As Christians, why should I care about what I get to do or what, that I get what I want? What I care about is other people. And far more important than what I like is that other people can be included as members of God's family. So this is why the Christian doesn't just ask, is this a sin? You know, when we're, when we're thinking about something, we don't just ask, is this a sin? Is this allowed? Oh, if it is a sin, I won't do it. If it isn't, I, I can do it. The Christian does ask that question, but then they ask, is it helpful for other people? Is it helpful for other people? Is it helpful for me and my godliness, but even more, is it helpful for other people and for their growth? We need to be what Martin Luther said about the Apostle Paul. He said he was strong in his faith, but soft in love. Strong in his faith, but soft in love. For salvation, truth matters more than anything. If the word of God speaks clearly, that truth matters. But for fellowship, love matters too. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, who was willing to stand up against people who would deny the gospel and fight for the truth. 
And Father, we thank you for that truth, that we are saved by faith alone, because we know that if it were by works, no one could be saved. But Father, now as Christians saved by faith, we thank you for the freedom we have in Christ, but help us not to stand on that freedom. Instead, we pray that we would love other people enough that we would be willing to give up freedoms so that they might hear the gospel, be saved and grow as your disciples. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.